Hey everybody, welcome to Observations. Thanks for joining me today for another crazy show. We do comics, pop culture, all your favorite comic book characters get name dropped at some point, as well as maybe some of your favorite comic book authors, because it's all intertwined. You don't get the stage and screen without the cool stuff that was on the paper. And uh, that is the story of my life. And uh, and that's that's what we do here. And today we are jumping head in to a pair of topics. One is independence, the power of independence, and how I came to dwell on this recently. And then the second, and we're going to end with haters and, and address haters and uh, and revisit something that I wrote 10 years ago, and uh, which, which still holds up today. And, and I'm, I'm excited to share that with you guys, but it's funny. So I'm uh, looking through my, my comic collection and, and uh, of course... The, the, I, I have alerts on different birthdays, uh, and and there was a birthday of a artist who's passed away, whose work you may or may not have known. But if you're my age, you know who Marshall Rogers is. Marshall Rogers burst on the scene uh, with one of the most dynamic portrayals of Batman that I had ever seen um, as a kid or now, and his influence can be seen in any. Absolutely any time somebody like a Todd McFarlane or a Greg Capullo draws Batman and they do these funky whips and curls and folds with his cape and his cape seems much longer than it has any right to be, almost this elasticity to it, uh, that, that is really uh, a signature of what Marshall Rogers brought to his run on Batman, which ran from different issues across 1976 through 1979. And so I, I, I was given the alert. And and uh, so I, I put, uh, given the alert that it was his birthday, and in one of my Facebook groups, I, I shared a bunch of his Batman covers and on Twitter. And, you know, look, these guys are my heroes. These are my artistic heroes. I believe that the artists of our age, the comic book guys that I grew up with and some of my peers um, are some of the most talented amazing uh, influencers of of their age and they'll never get all the credit that they're due because we are um, lower on the food chain than than honestly than we right rightfully belong to be we we belong to be higher Jack Kirby should be spoken of in the same way that Walt Disney uh, Steven Spielberg uh, J.R.R. Tolkien is is spoken of he is that important and and because he, and the fact that Jack Kirby is not the same household name is is largely due to the fact that he passed away at a young age and Stan Lee was he survived Stan lived to see all of this stuff come to light but Jack who was so very important as you as you know on this podcast I hold him in the highest highest regard but the fact that Jack is not as well known is sad it makes me sad but but it doesn't make him any less deserving and there's such a giant body of his work and we're going to get to him because he swings back around in this conversation about the independence marshall rogers drew the most dynamic amazing batman and he was inked by a favorite name that you'll hear on this podcast over 60 plus episodes now terry austin who to this day i I just don't even understand how he was so ahead of the curve he was uh was just uh he, he brought a crisp clean line work to his finishing on top of every penciler that he uh, he ever inked. And I've, I've looked through my own original art collection and I realize 
that I am actually maybe more of a Terry Austin fan than I am anything. But Terry on Marshall Rogers looked spectacular. And it was right around the same time that Terry was starting to ink over John Byrne on X-Men. So you had Batman at DC and X-Men at Marvel. And there's a bit of a crossover because the Marshall stuff kind of tapers off towards the end. And then he picks up full-time with John Byrne and that's his monthly gig. But Terry Austin on both guys was just spectacular. Marshall Rogers had one of those styles that lived in the slightly cartoony uh, realm like John Byrne did, not photorealistic and, and yet, yet not like, like Saturday morning cartoonish. It, it, it was, it was that great blend. It's, it's actually, I think the kind of style that all of my peers, uh, we all tried to uh, accomplish because, you know, it's weird people. And, and, and actually I'll touch on this on the haters. Um, if there's any doubt that I have notes before or that I don't have any notes when I come on and talk to you guys, let this be, uh, the, 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 the proof I am, I am, I am, uh, you know, collating this and, and filing this together in my brain as, as I talk to you guys, but we're, we're going to get to Kirby and in, in independence, and we're going to get to drawing from life later on in my thing from haters. But the bottom line, the number one reason I never wanted to really draw from real life is, is why would I do that when you can take a photo? And even when Alex Ross, who's the guy who no one has ever done life as good as he has in comics, he he portrays it better than anyone I've ever seen. Even he does copious photo referencing, and and he and he used to at least um, a lot of the times when he was much more personally involved in actually doing interior work. I think it was more interesting to him to show all of the different modeling work that he did on Kingdom Come or Marvels and the real life models that he put in these trench coats or handmade homemade suits that he had knitted up for these models to wear so he could see how the light played with their textures. And um, that that is like the extreme use of of life drawing in comics. And the reason it, it's so well done with with Alex is because his, his own textures, his stylings, his very unique strokes, as well as his unbelievable use of color uh, is, is what stands him apart from all the other guys who do the realistic stuff. But Marshall Rogers and John Byrne were not realistic guys. They were more on the stylistic, cartoony style, uh, side of things that had lended itself more towards realism without being real, okay? And uh, you just have to look at their stuff and see. Like, they're, they're, they're trying to strike that balance where it's it's stylistically realistic, but not realistic. not Certainly not photorealistic, but both gentlemen, uh, and in this case, Marshall Rogers, had a great sense of dynamics and... Uh, and, and, and he had a great design sense. And his Batman was very unique and very, very, very popular. So much so that when I was going to my first comic conventions, and one of the ones that I have the fondest memories of, I, I, I talk about quite often is in 1980, uh, right at the like early 82, February 82, or it was, it was either late 81, early 82, George Perez of the Avengers and Fantastic Four and Marvel two and one and of and, and and of the Teen Titans for the last year and a half prior to this convention. He had really and Justice League, he had he had gone over to DC and made his move. Really wise move on his part, by the way. A little bit like Tom Brady leaving the AFC so that he can go dominate the NFC because Patrick Mahomes was now standing in his way. That's what George Perez did when he crossed the street in nineteen eighty and went to DC where they were desperately in need of a superstar. Marvel had so many superstars that were on the rise. And George said, well, I can go be really special over there. Well, at this show, George was in attendance. Michael Golden, 
who had done some tremendous work for Marvel, a huge fan favorite run on a book that was based on a group of toys that everybody loved called the Micronauts. And trust me, it is the most amazing art like you've ever seen. It was like this once in a lifetime deal with the devil, 12 issues that he did because he never did 12 issues on anything really on that level ever again. Um, and if he did, he did it once, but, but Micronauts is his big signature run, but it can't be reprinted. So you may not be as familiar with it as possible, but if you're at a comic store and you can get the Micronauts, go and get the Micronauts. So I'm at this convention and Frank Miller was really the hot guy in the comic book world at the time. The Daredevil issues were super high in price. And that's what everybody was, 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 uh, everybody was, you know, trying to get their Daredevil books cheaper from all the different dealers. This is the era of the ballroom hotel show, uh, the hotel comic con that was thrown in hotel ballrooms. And, uh, this would be kind of the entire domain of the eighties. They don't become like arena sized and convention center sized until the nineties. But the, uh, San Diego was the one, but everything else was these awesome hotel ballrooms. This was the Disneyland hotel specifically. But another group of books that people were pursuing besides Frank Miller's Daredevils were the Marshall Rogers Batman. And they were going up in price and they were um, highly sought after and word of mouth had traveled just like when John Byrne got on X-Men and maybe you missed his first few issues. So those first six issues that you missed of John Byrne, you know, you were having to pay a higher price, you know, to, to collect them as a back issue. I've talked to you guys on this show how my one of my very best friends had a very, very legalistic um, Christian um, mother who threw all my comics that I loaned him away and proudly informed me that she had thrown them away and that I shouldn't be reading them. I paid handsomely to get those books back via comic book stores later in my, you know, later in my life. And I was like, I can't believe I bought this for a quarter and I have to pay six, seven bucks for this now. Whatever, that's crazy, right? So the thing is that we... Uh, you know, I'm I'm searching out Marshall Rogers Batman because he was his Batman run on Detective Comics, featuring Joker and Deadshot, um, just just phenomenal. Just people love that stuff. It was the 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 embodiment of fan favorite artwork. Fan favorite artwork. Now Marshall Rogers would come back a few years later on Doctor Strange at Marvel and do an extended run, also with Terry Austin inking him again, and of course all the fan favorite feels came back. Um, but the Batman example is what I really want to stick with here because for years and years after, so, so in 1982, if I'm hunting down Marshall Rogers detective comics and those are super hot, you know, on the street, you know, that they are going for the big bucks. People want them. So it's Frank Miller, it's Marshall Rogers, it's John Byrne, and it's, uh, it's George Perez. Those are the real hot names in comics at the time. And, uh, and, and the, the, the prices would bear them out. You know, these retailers, even back then, they knew, you know, supply and demand. And that, that Marshall Rogers stuff, especially nice copies, commanded higher prices. For years, uh, that was the fan favorite Batman that everybody looked to. And again, the, the Todd McFarlane depictions of Batman, which became very much so the Greg Capullo depictions of Batman. And in between, you had Todd Spawn and then Greg Spawn. All of that fancy cape work that sourced in Marshall Rogers. He really uh, did the cool, twisty, uh, what I call the talons of Batman's 
you know, cape and, and just, oh, just so many amazing depictions of Batman. It was the most, and I'm not really a Batman guy. And I've expressed that often. And the only time Batman really just sucker punched me and got me in all the feels was when Dark Knight came out with Frank Miller in 1986. And in the in-between time between Marshall Rogers' fan favorite run on Detective and anybody my age, again, is that is so readily available. You guys, I had Marat Michaels on this show during the Deadpool, um, History of Deadpool podcast. And, um, you know, Marat and I are, are, I think I'm maybe four or five years older than him. And uh, I, th- I think I'm five years older than, than Marat. And, and, but we shared a lot of the same tastes and all that stuff kind of crossed over. Well, he came down. He moved to Arizona about 10 years back and then was visiting on another visit when he came back into Southern California. And we went to one of our favorite stores, Tustin Tunes and Toys. And we were looking around and Marat reached down in the trade paperback section and pulled up a gem. And he got the Marshall Rogers Batman, the complete collection, all the Marshall Rogers Batmans. And I was like, oh my gosh. And he goes, sorry, bud, there's not another. And he knew immediately. And I, I mean, I, I I don't wear it on my face often, but I was like, that sucks. I, I like, I did not even think, but Marat, he was a heat-seeking missile. He knew what he wanted. He got it. So to this day, I'm like, man, you got that Marshall Rogers trade. And as soon as this is over, I'm hitting Amazon and getting that same trade because th- 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 this reminds me that I desperately still need that in my collection. I have the original detectives, but just so you know, the Marshall Rogers stuff, people my age, again, Marat, even five years younger than me, man, he went after that in, in probably 2011, 2011, 2012, 10, nine years, you know, uh, ago, he, he went after it. And, and again, it's just, uh, it's, it's case in point. Marshall Rogers, Batman was the absolute shit. Everybody loved it. And in the in-between times, Jim Aparo, who is a just amazing Batman artist, amazing, all admiration of Jim Aparo. He did all sorts of, all manner of Batman in, in Brave and the Bold and in different Batman titles, Batman and the Outsiders. Uh, you know, he, he was he was a great Batman artist. And, and then you had Batman depicted by various different artists uh, in Justice League, a few by George Perez that were nice, but I never thought George was a, a like, I don't think Batman really spoke to his strengths. Um, you had Dick Dillon, uh, illustrating him. You had Gene Colan on for a spell, you know, Irv Novick. You had all these different artists and everybody did, a, you know, a, a nice job on Batman. But then Frank came along and he just doubled down and Batman was older. He was thicker, broader, stronger, meatier, meaner, mean as hell. And that was suddenly the Batman that dominated. And I'm going to tell you right now, Whoever does Batman, this is the Rob Liefeld. If you want to disagree, that's fine. This is the Rob Liefeld, Rob Liefeld view on everything. Frank Miller's Batman is the most influential Batman today. When I look at what these guys are doing, I still see all Frank Miller all the time. And, and it's great that they've done multiple sequels to The Dark Knight. And Frank has been either the writer or the showrunner kind of overseeing, inputting on so much of that. On the last time, the third, the threequel, uh, he did a bunch of mini comics and it was cool because he inked some of them and Klaus Janssen inked some of them. But the bottom line is Frank kind of flew in and, and dominated Batman and has dominated the look, the feel, the portrayal. And I covered this in the Dark Knight episode, so I don't want to retread this too much. But the example is that suddenly the Marshall Rogers... Batman became a much distant past because as slick and cool and fancy and influential as it was, it wasn't Frank's Batman. 
And uh, the Frank Batman is what I see when Jim Lee draws Batman. He's just doing a cleaner Jim Lee version of Batman. Greg Capullo does a closer version of Batman down to the thickness, the broadness, the the, the, the shadows, kind of the, the, the height, the weight, uh, the way he depicts him. Um, you know, that, that, that I just see so much of, of Frank over the 30 years since he did, I mean, good God, it's, it's, it's 30, 35, 36 years since he did Dark Knight. And, uh, and it's just amazing that, that, that it, it is, it is such an absolute dominant depiction of that character. Same with, with, uh, with his depiction of Daredevil. I've covered how he transformed Daredevil from Spider-Man also ran kind of a, oh yeah, he's kind of like Spider-Man swings from buildings and protects the city, but he doesn't have webs and he's not as cool to badass grindhouse, martial arts, Kung Fu, ninjas, supernatural, just whoa, whoa, his Daredevil to this day, everyone's trying to top his Daredevil. When I see what they did, when Kevin Smith came on Marvel Knights, he just basically inserted a different chapter in the Frank Miller run. He brought it all the way back to the Frank Miller era stuff and had it depicted in the same manner that Frank did. It was like, oh, we're going back to the warm, cuddly blanket of Frank Miller. Um, Everybody who really kind of uh, finds the zone, what they're searching for is what Frank did on Daredevil. So what does this have to do with independence? Well, once you have mastered or created the definitive version of that character, fill in the blank. Uh, For Superman, to me, it's Neil Adams, and he never did a single issue of Superman. His only interior Superman job was Superman Muhammad Ali, but Neil did a decade's worth of Superman covers. And his Superman became the Superman that was licensed everywhere. And and no one has ever drawn a more handsome, dashing uh, version of, of Superman. Christopher Reeves' Superman looks like Neil Adams' Superman. That goes a long way as well. But Neil is, to me, the definitive Superman artist of all space and time. Other people will argue with me and go, no, it's Kurt Swan. Kurt Swan did Superman the interiors for years. For, I mean, maybe over a decade's worth of Superman depictions from Kurt Swan. But his, as as great as I love it, his his Superman always looked a little too old and squatty to me. Nowhere near the lean, mean beautiful, gorgeous, handsome depiction that Neil did. And again, Neil, Neil Superman became licensed on calendars, on t-shirts, on posters, on lunchboxes. And it, it still lives on today. Neil's Superman still has resonance. That is when you know you have made a definitive mark. So what then do you do when you can't move around that depiction of that character? To this day, when I see someone trying to do Thor, I, I feel like they are trying to do Walt Simonson's Thor. Walt took the stuff that Jack did and made it modern and relevant in a way that I had never even considered possible. And so I think of Walt first when I think of Thor, and then I think of Jack Kirby, even though Walt kind of needed all that Jack to become Walt, but Walt to me is kind of the definitive Thor. And I feel like I'm betraying Jack saying that, but Jack's Fantastic Four is the definitive. Those 101 issues are the definitive Fantastic Four. There's, n- I do not think of Fantastic Four or New Gods and don't immediately jump to Jack Kirby, the king of comics. But so occasionally what happens with the power of independence and doing your own thing and depicting your own version is, uh, you know, then you control the volume, the magnitude the, the, the quantity of that character and that independent voice that you establish outside of the 
the the depiction of the 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 popular corporate character because let I mean Batman's a corporate character Spider-Man's a corporate character these are owned by giant corporate monoliths now we get a lot of cool visions of them but you know what do you do when Daredevil is forever going to be compared to Frank Miller and Batman is forever going to be compared to Dark Knight and the reason I bring this up is you know the Marshall Rogers stuff has been lost to the sands of time because well partially also Marshall God bless his soul uh, died I believe in 2007 and uh and and has not been with us for a very long time died very young too and uh and it's just you know really really you know sad that someone who had the, the talent of his magnitude and he was still producing comics in the early 2000s Marshall Rogers was still a guy who was making comics but like I said as 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 his Batman is adored it's no less adored but it went from the fan favorite like the fan favorite um status to to you know, being dominated by this new Frank Miller version that suddenly is the way everyone depicted it. Now, like I said, when Todd came along a few years later, he mixed it all up. He had a little Frank, he had a little, you know, he had a little, he had a little, little Marshall Rogers, but the cape stuff, the, 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 you know, the cape stuff was a cool design element that people who like design elements would absolutely make sure that they hit that note when they depicted Batman. Frank was all about being visceral. I mean, he tore, you know, he tore up Batman's costume. He tore it repeatedly. In the first issue, he's he's shooting at the symbol, and you're seeing that the Batman symbol's on his chest because it gives people something to shoot at. Brilliant! But he's got you see the Kevlar under his under his armor. Fra Frank really wanted to really tear down everything that made him Batman. At one point, I mean, Batman's shirtless. I mean, ba Frank wanted to tear him down and then build him back up again. And uh, but again, so he wasn't really concerned with doing fancy schmancy stuff with the cape. As, as somebody like Marshall Rogers who led the way and kind of paved the path for that stuff. But Frank would ultimately go on and in the 90s, he started depicting this crime series, this hard-boiled crime series, crime noir, called Sin City. And Sin City was a revelation and Marv and just all of the amazing uh, depictions that, 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 I mean, Sin City was endless. It wasn't just Marv, you know. It was it was everybody in Crime Alley and 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 the, and the that that group of prostitutes that that had swords and throwing stars and you know he he told these really deep stories of Sin City. It was the characters in the city, and at first you thought it was Marv, but at the end of Sin City, I won't. Well, if you saw the movie, you saw you know Marv gets fried, and when I. When I saw that happen at the end of his first Sin City series, I was like, this is ballsy. And then, of course, I was taken aback in the next story with Dwight where Marv was still alive. But then you realize this is a this is, this happened prior to Sin City, number one. So in 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 prequels, Marv was still walking around in the background. He's a character. He's he's, you know, there's Miho. There's all these wonderful characters. And Frank did Sin City pretty much nonstop for a decade. This crime noir, hard-boiled, uh, very, very—they were—they were mostly always in black and white, but that became Frank's signature decade work. It was his work of a decade. People like myself, since he had a huge audience, because it was Frank Miller, you'd pick up anything that he did, and people gravitated towards it, and it was influential to the point where you know Jim Lee did an entire book based on that style. Death Blow was. Jim chasing Frank again. 
you know, it's like, well, I, 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 you know, I loved how you did Batman. And, and, and the thing about Frank that we all loved is his boldness. Nothing could hold him down. Suddenly, again, everything is 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 all told with harsh shadows, chiaroscuro style. Which that's a, that's a very technical word. Chiaroscuro is the harshest is is when you the 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 the, the harshest shadow on your on your, on your body that the cast shadows and the chiaroscuro shadows, and and that is what Frank was doing, and he was t- telling everything in this hard contrast. Now, now Jim Starenko had done this prior in a few jobs. But Frank made it his bread and butter. Immediately, again, owned it, owned this style. You now think it. Well, it's Frank Miller, and uh, Sin City became the new microphone that that Frank spoke out of. You know, almost exclusively. And then at the end of the '90s, as we dovetailed into the 2000s, Frank decides we need to know about the history of the Spartans at Thermopylae and the Hot Gates, and he gives us 300. And this time. It's told in landscape style. Everything is double page spreads so that when it's printed as a graphic novel, it's in landscape, hardcover landscape style, which is phenomenal. And and so now Frank Miller is giving us this tale of history um, about the Battle of the Hot Gates, the, the Spartans, the 300. And the great thing about all this is you know about Sin City and you know about 300 because they were giant, massive, major motion picture releases. Um by Zack Snyder, by Robert Rodriguez. Frank Miller co-directed uh, both Sin Cities. And, and, and here's the deal. So there, there, in a nutshell, is the power of independence. Frank went off on his own after redefining two giant corporate icons, Daredevil, um, who no matter what, in, in when I say he was a second-rate Spider-Man, there was a place for him. He was, he was still being published, albeit bi-monthly and almost canceled. But he had been around. He had survived. And Frank came and just electrified him. Just lightning struck. And again, that depiction lasts to this day. Frank redefines Batman. And then as his encore, he does Sin City. And then he does 300. And is there nothing this guy can't do? I mean, 300 is not drawn in the style of Sin City. The chiaroscuro, hard shadows style. He depicts it in this more kind of underground style where he was making his work, kind of he was inching his work towards. But it's, Frank's all about the gestures, the storytelling, the page design, the flow. He's, he's, he's in my opinion, Frank Miller is the best storyteller that our medium has ever seen. He combines everything that is great about Kirby and about Will Eisner and all the masters and film, and he combines it. And he is the best storyteller of my lifetime. And that covers at least 53 years. And I think it's even even more than that. And I, I mean, I really cannot tell you how much I have been profoundly influenced by Frank. But he, gra- he takes the microphone. He does Sin City. He does thousands of pages of Sin City. I mean, the collected edition of Sin City is the biggest single omnibus I own. It is the heaviest book I have. I absolutely know it could stop a bullet. Um it is if if Bill Simmons' book of basketball was proven to stop a bullet, then then this could stop too. The, his Sin City is that cumbersome. I I only look in it when when I absolutely you know have to maybe once a year. Otherwise, I have the trade paperbacks that I always flip through. And again, it was Frank Miller's birthday, so it was Marshall Rogers' birthday a week ago, and it was Frank Miller's birthday. He turned sixty four this week as I'm doing this podcast, and so I got out the picture of uh, Frank. He was signing Sin City at Golden Apple and myself and Dan Frega, who is a um, member of Extreme Studios, an artist of, of great talent that, that worked at Extreme Studios. We hopped in the car on a Saturday 
and went up to, to, to Melrose, the same place I did my Youngblood signing, and hung out with Frank. And he wrote little notes in all my Sin City trade collections because I had him sign like six or seven of them and each, each edition. And he said, keep on fighting. And the one thing Frank really loved about the Image guys was even though we were 10 years younger than he was, uh, um, 11 years in my case, we're 11, I'm, I'm 11 years younger than Frank. He's 11 years older. Uh, he appreciated that we took up the fight for creators' rights and independence. And that struck through being independent, creators' rights is, is struck by being independent and having something of your own that you can manage. I've, I've managed, I've, I've, I've told you about my own extreme library of my own characters that I went on to do after topping the charts at Marvel because I really looked around and said, well, well I, what, what do I do here? I, 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 do I go do Fantastic Four? Do I, do I try and radically change the Fantastic Four and, 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 and take on that challenge? Or while the door is open, because people like all these creations that I've, I've, I've done, again, creations that I entered into an agreement knowing I would profit share with those characters. Again, that, that's a first part of the taste of independence that, that, that back in 1990, I'm signing these contracts that say if there's a cartoon, if there's a, if there's a trading card, if there's a, if there's an action figure, and trust me, I was cleaning out my garage this summer with my son as we were kind of making it more manageable to fit another car in the in that garage. I had a lot of stuff to move and my college age student uh, you know, bartered a deal where 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 upon I, I would, you know, pay him to do this and it was the best money I ever spent. And when he came home from Christmas vacation, just so you know, Luke Liefeld was like, Dad, you kept it. Like you you did it, you accomplished it, you kept it, you kept it strong. You you, you the car still fit. You did a good job. Because he was for sure thought I was going to just overtake it with, you know, comic boxes and, you know, all my toys and all the stuff overspilling. So anyway, while we were doing that this summer, I came across all of my checks and royalty statements from the 90s from Marvel. And there it is. The gazillions of dollars off action figures and trading cards. And that is part of buying your independence as a creator so that you can make your franchises. But what I was really, what I want to end this independent part about because again are you really do your batman story like i'm doing a snake eyes story do i think i'm redefining snake eyes i do not i will never take the mantle of snake eyes from larry hama he is the guy that's his character i am serving servicing his legacy that he brought to that character whenever i produce a page and i am almost done with my story i have this last chapter to polish off and we're done and i am always when i'm doing it trying to honor him now, I inserted my own characters in it so that I'd bring something fresh. I, I created a villain. I created a new female femme fatale. Um, but, but the whole part is to service the character and, and, and maybe shine some light and hopefully drive people to get all the back issues and, and, and the G.I. Joes that they've missed. But at no point do I believe I'm going to erase the legacy of the guy who created Snake Eyes in, in regards to Larry Hama. But I had to get it out of my system. So get your Batman story, get your Superman story, get your Justice League story out of your system. But at some point, the road to freedom is through your artistic independence and your artistic independence is achieved when you create a vision that is solely um, yours to control. And uh, the, the, the guy I was going to mention is Howard Shaken. You've heard me mention him before, but I haven't gone and done a deep dive on Howard. Howard uh, was was a really capable 70s penciler along the lines with Frank Miller and Walt Simonson and all these guys. And those guys all shared a studio for a period of time. Howard was tapped after doing Cody, Starbuck, and some other uh, kind of cool sci-fi, I mean, some, some stuff that he created on his own. 
he caught the eye of George Lucas who wanted him hand selected to do Star Wars. And he did Star Wars, but it got away from him very quickly because the licensed uh book and 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 he had to draw Obi-Wan and Luke and Leah more on the model that they wanted. They brought in another very capable artist named Steve Lealoa, and you can see the marked the marked changes between issues one and two is Lealoa's inks. And they're more Lealoa is a more uh has has a has a I will say a prettier, a softer, a more illustrative line than the hard graphics of Howard. Howard then goes on, but he did the entire Star Wars, but by the end you've got Dave Stevens who would go on to do the Rocketeer, doing finishes, you've got Rick Hoberg, you've got Bill Ray, you've got all these people finishing and polishing Star Wars. But Howard was part of all of it and was, I don't think Star Wars the comic happens without Howard because George Lucas wanted Howard based on the sci-fi work that Howard had done. Then Howard goes and he follows the aforementioned Michael Golden of the Micronauts. He follows Michael Golden on Micronauts. And I got to tell you, I, I didn't think, I, as far as Howard, it just felt like he was um, punching a clock. It was very, in, in my opinion, uninspired work. And I'm watching this Howard Chaykin guy. And then he does this one issue of, of Marvel premiere with a character named Dominic Fortune. This kind of Indiana Jones, kind of, uh, you know, 40s kind of swashbuckler guy uh and 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 it's great and who inks it is terry austin to this day it's one of my favorite single 22 page jobs ever and uh howard chicken just crushed it with this and little did we know that he was making his plans to flex his full independent muscle and where howard chicken became howard chicken and the reason that he resonates to this day and the reason people have stars in their eyes when they meet and discuss howard chicken is the body of work that he created on a book called American Flag, American Flag, F-L-A-G-G, if you go to Google, American Flag, which put First Comics, an independent comic company, this was this was the age of the independence, Pacific Comics was coming out, and who did they launch with? They launched with an independent effort by Jack Kirby, okay, so now Jack, Jack already flexed when he left Marvel, and he proved his independence when he created the New Gods and the Fourth World and all that amazing stuff, but more so than anything, Jack started, you know, making his own creator, Captain Victory, and, you know, and the Galactic Rangers. I I licked up those pages. They were fantastic. Jack owning his own stuff. He did Silver Star. Mike Grell left Warlord, which he did like 60 issues of, and he created Star Slayer for Pacific Comics. And he would later later go on to do John Sable. And and Mike Grell and and, and Jack Kirby are, are like these voices to me in the 80s, in 1980, 81, as, as these independents breaking off. And then First Comics opens up and, and our good friend Howard Shaken launches this book that is like Blade Runner before Blade Runner. But it's, um and, and I'm telling you, some of the graphics and some of the storytelling techniques in American Flag were openly co-opted by Frank Miller on Dark Knight. And if you want to absorb American Flag, try and get the definite, the definitive collection that was, uh, that was, uh, published by by Dynamic Forces and Image Comics, co-published by both of them. I don't know when this was published. Let me see. I, I don't have my glasses on, but I'm I'm gonna um I, I I think this is around 2008. They finally put this out, and this collects the bulk of Howard's uh, first couple of years on American Flag. And Howard used Duotone board, which was a board where that you drew on it, and and when you ink and then you inked. But then with a brush and chemicals, you would bring out different textures that were built into the paper, but they had to be activated by the chemicals or the water, but it was mostly chemicals. And, uh, and, and, and he really introduced this, he, he, 
his style and his storytelling and his sound effects, uh, the the actual drawing. I mean, I'm flipping through it right now, and this is just amazing. And so much of American Flag, I'm going to tell you, impacted Frank Miller, and I believe Frank reflected so much of this influence in Dark Knight. For case in point, the idea of people on television screens framing stories, media um, uh, informing informing uh, you know um, actual page designs and and setting up scenes is something that Howard incorporated and did first and and it really was this futuristic um, depiction uh, with the, with this kind of uh, police force and this and, and I mean it, it's just the the absolute design and uh, the, the the design and the drawing on American flag is is second to none this hit the market profoundly profoundly Ruben flag aka American flag was a massive hit on the independent scene and Howard Chaikin was immediately viewed of as an influencer in a way that he had not been even with his Star Wars work his micronauts work now he was he's writing he's penciling He's inking. He's using these new techniques on this duotone board that no one had ever heard of before. But later on, John Byrne follows him into the duotone world and starts doing this stuff. But, um, you know, American Flag was uh, profound in its influence graphically. I, I cannot underestimate and tell you how the graphics, the way the book is inked, the bold graphics. I mean, um, Howard, based on the success of Ruben Flag Studios through him, the, 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 the publishers... Marvel and DC threw him all sorts of work. He came on to rejuvenate the shadow, the pulp hero of the shadow. DC Comics gave him this handsome series that he wrote and drew called The Shadow. He then came on and he rejuvenated Blackhawks, which is another older DC property. But um, how did that happen? It wasn't Star Wars. It wasn't the Micronauts. It wasn't the publisher stuff. Dominic Fortune, this one issue of Marvel premiere, Google it, Dominic Fortune, he really was starting to flex and show all that he would bring to bear in American Flag. But American Flag launched, I mean, First Comics, suddenly everybody looked at First Comics differently. They absolutely looked at First Comics as if like, hey, you know, um, uh, what else do they got? What else do they got? Maybe everything's going to be as good as American Flag. Um, Michael Chabon, Chabon um, wrote the, the Adventures of Cavalier and Clay that took the early 2000s, the early aughts, by storm. Everybody went crazy for the adventures of Cavalier and Clay. He writes, he writes the foreword in American Flag, this collected edition. And um, he talks about how, uh, uh, you know, that, that it's hard to imagine Dark Knight Returns and The Watchmen without American Flag to pave the way. And uh, I'm telling you right now, uh, he says the debt to American flag, while obvious to all who enjoyed it, has been neglected. Okay, um, the, the 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 flag in both its style, its concepts, fed the literary genre of cyberpunk that has since watered the entire landscape of comic of popular culture, from comic books and computer games to movies to television. Again, I'm not arguing that Chaikin invented dystopian comics or cyberpunk, only that he articulated a set of tropes and packaged them in a way that brought them to durable, ravishing life. And honestly, that that's really the, the end-all, be-all. American flag, there is no Dark Knight or Watchmen. That's how profound this was. But it was when 
Howard Chaikin went independent. So he wasn't somebody else's Batman story. He wasn't somebody else's Spider-Man story. I've told you guys, I love Stan Lee's Spider-Man. Those first 20 issues, 25 issues with Steve Ditko are my some of my favorite Spider-Man comics of all time. But my favorite Spider-Man story was written by Roy Thomas, Lynn Ween, Jerry Conway, not Stan. And they were drawn by Gil Kane, okay? Those are the stories that I love the most. When, when he battled Morbius and the Lizard and when Peter Parker got six arms, that was profound to me. And uh, it was reprinted when I was a kid. It wasn't fresh. It was reprinted, but it, it, it had the biggest effect on me. So the bottom line, the power of going independence is controlling your future. And, and I'm not sure that the guys at Image Comics would have had the careers that we had if we hadn't gone independent when we did. Really, the timing was everything. Following up Spider-Man and X-Force and X-Men with Youngblood, Spawn, and Wildcats was the opening to creating our own catalog of characters. And even now, like I'm going to tell you, I've read this amazing screenplay to Profit. And I know that there's stuff going on with Profit that I can't share with you guys that's very exciting. And there are uh, there's about five other of my catalog that are being pursued by really exciting talent. And I can't do that unless I own that and unless I went independent. And, you know, obviously the king of the independence is Robert Kirkman who started out with Invincible, who's going to have this killer, killer, killer Amazon animated series. And obviously this gigantic walking dead empire that continues to march to this day. Those are huge achievements that Robert um, accomplished. And then he kind of went and dabbled with Marvel and, 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 and didn't enjoy it as much as he wanted and came back and dominated some more as an independent. So, so that is, that speaks to the power and the independence and, and what you get when you go independent and why I thought of Marshall Rogers and why as many people don't know of his Batman and then why I thought of Frank Miller and how not only did he create the most definitive Batman of my age and of the last 35 years that everyone is still copying, but he goes and creates this giant independent voice with Sin City, with 300, with all the projects that he did. And then it brought me to Howard Chaikin, who really inspired everybody when he broke the mold early 80s, early 80s, and did this amazing American flag work. So the other thing that I, you know, in regards to haters and, sh and shifting and pivoting here away from the power of independence and what that can accomplish and the voice that it can give you and the identity that it can provide you. That's really what the power of the independence can give you and being independent can provide you. But the pivot away from that topic and the power of that. I mean, think about it. The guy who did Star Wars isn't as well known for Star Wars as he is for his independent project, which, which really... Again, I cannot tell you if you were not going to comics, a comic store and getting comics in the early 80s, how big of a deal American Flag was and how profound it was. And, and again, its influence on, on guys like Alan Moore and, and his influence on, on guys like Frank Miller. Amazing. But so, so this age that we're in, this Twitter age, this, this Instagram age, this, this TikTok age, this Snapchat age, my kids, again, they're all into this stuff. Um, I stopped at Instagram. I never got a Snapchat. Okay. I think I registered my name on TikTok and, and that was it. But uh, so I have had an awesome career, a 34-year career that I love, that I am so appreciative of. And at the end of the day, um, what, what, what I've, I've encountered, especially borrowing that phrase from Blade Runner, the, the light that Brian, the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And you have burned so very bright, Roy, Okay. My signature line from 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 Blade Runner when his creator, um, when 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 uh, you know, uh, 
Rutger Hauer is told that by his creator and, 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 and kind of the message of the replicants. Um, I think applies to everything in, in life. Actor, um, uh, uh, actors, artists, um, musicians. Sometimes they can do so, suddenly you hit a certain peak and then, and, then, and then a negative voice comes in and they want to tear you down and they want to bring you down. And, and, and for me, I'd never seen it more than with Kobe Bryant. I, I, I remind my kids that prior to Kobe winning his last two championships in 09 and, and, and 2010, and, and 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 losing in the finals in 08, he went three straight finals to cap off this championship run. Where literally in a decade, he won half the championships: three with Shaq and and two on his own, or two with Powell. And but people had turned on Kobe. Kobe had a lot of time where people, the the press, the sports media, crucified him. They they murdered him. They just they just always uh, took him to task and and counted him out. Called him a prima, prima donna, a ball hog. He was nothing without Shaq. Other members of the NBA, Ray Allen, Vince Carter, Allen Iverson, all went on the record that those championships the Lakers won in the early 2000s, well, they would have won those two because they had Shaq. And, I, and, and it crushed me that my favorite athlete of all time was being so disrespected. But the thing that I loved about Kobe Bryant was that he always, he didn't let it, he didn't let it get him down. He only made it, it, he worked harder. He worked harder and he only produced more fruit as a result of the pressure because pressure is going to break you or it's going to make you. And, and, and it's a mindset. But 10 years ago on October 6, 2011, uh, I wrote a thing on my website called how to beat the haters, how I do it. I see a lot of hate online on Instagram, on Twitter. I generally don't fight with haters. I, I may try and do a slight dunk on them once in a while now because it's fun, but you can't fight with them. You're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to fight with them. That's that's never going to go well. Um, th- th- these guys live to, to to have a conflict, and when you respond to them, they'll just go AWOL and make the next 24 hours of their life showing their friends how they're engaging you. So I've really mastered the art of just the ignorant, ignoring, muting, moving on. But in 2011, I wrote, How to Beat the Haters, How I Do It. I said it was the early 2000s when I received a call from Bob Harris asking me to pinch hit a few issues on Wolverine. Then artist Steve Scrooge was cutting his run short because he was being called back to duty for the Matrix sequels. There were a number of reasons that I viewed this as a perfect exit strategy from the business of comic books. In short, I was looking to retire from comic books even for a brief period. My first child was set to be born that spring and I was beyond burned out from the torrential pace of the 90s, the burning bright. From New Mutants to Cable to Deadpool to X-Force to Starting Image to Launching Youngblood, Extreme Studios, Heroes Reborn, I ran that decade into the ground. The only guys who ran it as hard and frantic as I did were Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane, both whom had retired from creating comic books years prior. I had saved my money and I was looking to take an extended break from the business that was going through a sizable shift. And this fits into also the 2000s that are coming as a subject here. So the opportunity to go out writing and drawing my favorite X-Men, yes, it will always be Wolverine, was just too good to pass up. Looking to make the right, uh, looking to make the tight deadlines, I drew pages in the back of our pregnancy classes, eagerly anticipating the Deadpool versus Wolverine battle that I had opened up the issue with. I packed the book full of new villains, spotlighted Deadpool heavily, and in the end turned the lights off on my career, going out as the number two comic book on the charts the month that my issue shipped. I was gone on my terms. Perfect. Awesome. For the next three years, as my wife and I started a family, I was obsessed with the internet as I, has ever been, as I have ever been. I spent morning, noon, and night watching the Quesada, Quemus era, Bill Jemis era begin at Marvel. The dawn of the ultimate universe, the tragedy of 9-11, how the comics industry nobly embraced it and memorialized it. 
I followed the rise and fall of cross-gen comics. I watched Image Comics change publishers, expand, grow their operations, and watched the emergence of a young talent named Robert Kirkman. I read every single story on Newsarama, comic book resources, and I remember when Bleeding Cool was called Lying in the Gutters. Between raising a family, following the comic business, and my NBA Lakers obsession, I was doing great. Along the way, though, through my internet musings, I started to read about a guy named Rob Liefeld, this hack that couldn't draw, he couldn't create, he didn't deserve a career of any kind in comics. What? It was me. It was me they were attacking, sometimes viciously, relentlessly. I'll admit that I was a little taken back by the severity of the vitriol. Over lines on paper, pencils, and ink, I had gone quiet, and in my absence, every single achievement had been altered, dismissed, I was watching as other people were rewriting my career history. Having never been a wallflower or anything remotely resembling a shrinking violet, I remember distinctly thinking, screw this, hell no. And I formulated a plan to fight back and regain and restore my former career piece by piece. The internet, it began with the internet, with Warren Ellis. Yes, Warren Ellis, I had followed him online, watched him interact with his weekly newsletter. He had built quite a tribe of online followers, and I felt that there was much to learn from his example. Remember, this was a long time before Facebook or Twitter were anything even remotely resembling a reality. In short, social media did not exist, so I started by jumping on message boards, interacting with a variety of different threads, even those that were famous for bashing me. I was always calm and polite in the face of even the most heinous attacks and stood my ground and didn't get involved on an emotional level. If you don't like me, fine. I can only defend a fallacy about my work, not how you feel about me personally. Along the way, I picked up a legion of fans who were enthusiastic about my work and were excited to chat back and forth. Eventually, the lot of us migrated from threads on other boards over to the official Rob Liefeld message boards. We have currently been together for over a decade. Now, again, this is back in 2011 that I'm reading that, that I wrote this. I've spent countless hours talking, texting, dining, basically sharing life with these new friends that I made online. I have their backs and they have mine. We have honest commentary about our likes and dislikes. And I know that I have made friends for life. And those guys, I'm going to name some of them right now that I didn't put in this column, but, but Terry and Chris and Carlos and Jeremy and Sean, um, Craig, uh, so just so many guys that, that I'm, 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 Shorting the list here, but so many great guys that I've seen over so many years, different ports of call that I'll go to, and I know that these guys are going to be there, and we share our lives together. I've watched them get married, um, start families, change careers. It's great. I, I really meant it when I said that I felt like I made friends for life. As a matter of fact, it was online that I met what be my what may be my own personal Jesus, my personal comic book messiah, Mark Miller. I had been writing an online column called Observations for a website called Spinner Rack. And behold, one morning I received an email from a gentleman whose work I was gushing over, the one and only Mark Miller himself. It was a quick note that read, enjoy your work, enjoy your column. Cheers. That single note opened up a line of communication that led to Mark doing a comic book called Youngblood Bloodsport for me, which is the book that got me back in front of the drawing board and returned me to publishing after a three-year absence. Speaking of social media, there is simply no excuse for not personally connecting with the universe of fans and consumers that are online around the globe. Between Facebook and Twitter, you can talk to anyone and everyone everywhere. I absolutely relish this opportunity to talk to folks with like-minded interests. If you are a professional and are engaged in social media, then you know the excitement of talking to a broad spectrum of fans and retailers. Feedback is instantaneous and you would be wise to respond to as many people as possible in order to strengthen your connections. I still fondly remember meeting George Perez and when he called my house, chatting me up as a teenager. 
I was a member of the Teen Titans fan club and the thought of George calling me at home was just out of this world. Social media offers us the opportunity to ring up our fan bases every single day. As far as haters go, they are drowned out by the 100,000 fans that I speak to every day online through Facebook, Twitter. It's more than that now, but this is, again, 10 years ago. And through my personal message fans, message boards. There's no subject that I like talking more about than comic books, and I can do it 24-7. So much so, as you know, if you're listening to this, that I started a podcast. Um, I love talking comics 24-7 through social media because somewhere, someone is up at all times. There's a virtual convention online every waking moment. How are you not taking part of it? Then I had a header called conventions. When, you, when you've been gone from any scene, in this case, the comic scene, for any extended period of time, you should get out there and personally press the flesh and meet as many of your fans as possible. Back in the 90s, when I did a signing, it was never an extended practice. It was always one or two hours, top, sign, cap the line, get up, leave, go home. Upon returning to the convention scene and debuting a new product such as Youngblood Bloodsport, I knew, and Youngblood Bloodsport was published in 2003, so that, that was seven years in the, eight years in the rearview mirror when I wrote this. I knew I had to firmly plant myself, sometimes for up to 10 hours a day, personally hand-sell each and every comic book. I sat down in San Diego in the summer of 2003, t- summer of 2003, and I felt like a stranger in a strange land. As I've mentioned, my peers had all retreated from the business, mostly from fatigue, and the 90s seemed like two decades in the past, instead of only just a few years. Big, splashy comics had been replaced with 8 to 12 panel pages, tons of talking heads, new storytelling practices known as compressed storytelling and writing for the trades were the, were the practice of the day. I sat there as the opening bell rung on the Thursday of Comic-Con 2003 in a panic, I scribbled out free head sketches on the placard and placed it on my table. I felt that with no product out in the marketplace for the past three years, I needed to give some sort of incentive to come and get reacquainted with me. A line of 20, 25 people immediately formed around my table, and I poured myself into the very best sketches of my career. Superman, Wolverine, Cable, Deadpool, you name it, I drew it. What may have been a common practice to many artists in Artist Alley was brand new to me. I had never, ever drawn anything for free at any convention prior to that, but for the next four days, I drew 50 to 60 sketches and sold over 15,000 copies of Youngblood Bloodsport in person at San Diego. Bottom line, giving a sketch was giving a piece of myself to each and every person who had invested their time and interest in me and my career. At a recent signing for the premiere of The Infinite with Robert Kirkman, we sat for five hours drawing at least 100 head sketches for all the fans in line. A two-hour signing went three hours overtime. This is a practice I still highly recommend. Give back to your fans. Conventions are akin to campaigning. There are dozens of candidates on the floor, each vying for the attention of the consumer. How are you going to stand out? What are you offering the casual consumer? The creator X is not. Remember, I was entering a field where I had become somewhat notorious and I could not afford to act like, so, like I was some big-time creator despite my big-time career accomplishments. By doing so and staying seated for the entire show, I had become more accessible to the people who had supported my career than I had ever been before. Each drawing would take 45 to 60 minutes, so the dedicated group that had assembled for sketches were able to converse with me, and I was able to listen and learn in a way that I had not before. The chatter among fans is important to you and your career. Listen and learn is my motto. Consumers told me what they liked, what they didn't like, and what they missed in comics. Did I mention what a blast this entire experience was? I took my extended tour on the road and sketched nonstop for three hours along the way. I was offered Cable and Deadpool, a new X-Force revival, Teen Titans, Onslaught Reborn. After a dozen shows over three years, I eventually had to stop the free head sketches for so many reasons, but the dedication to meeting and greeting the fans was essential to furthering mine or any career. Also of note, I didn't just stick to big cities. I visited smaller markets as well. 
There is much more to fandom than L.A., Chicago, and New York. I've never been good at panels or shows, but I also recommend getting on as many of them as possible in order to connect personally with your fans. Real quick, when I say fan, I mean I include myself because I, first and foremost, am a comic book fan, a Star Wars fan, a Lost fan, a Battlestar Galactica fan, a Lakers fan. I don't find the term demeaning, so I hope that my use of this term is appropriate. In short, I have done as many as 60 shows this past few years. Some years I do more than others. As my family gets older, my time is more limited, but there are plenty of shows popping up in every region that would be happy to have you as a guest. And when you show up in person, you control the entire fan creator experience. It's on your terms. Wouldn't you rather have this chance to directly influence the consumer instead of some angry blogger or frustrated comic store clerk? You can never rest on your laurels, award-winning, record-setting, or otherwise. This is a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately business, and you need to deliver product and make it timely or else. I've learned this the hard way. After failing to deliver many books on time, I turned it around and started producing regular work, starting with X-Force in 2004, Shatterstar, Teen Titans 2005, most recently Deadpool, the Deadpool Corps. My longest stint on any title or character in over a decade. It may be, it may, may not be the gig you desire, but any regular gig is an opportunity to show fans and more importantly, retailers, retailers what you're de- that you are deserving of their commitment and their attention. Without product, you are the equivalent of a tribute band playing dated tunes from another period. I love Night Ranger as much as the next guy, but I'm not buying a ticket to hear them belt out Sister Christian for the thousandth time. Keep the product fresh. Keep your connections Um, coming and increase every facet of your business. I am currently producing more work than at any time in my career. This echoes today. This is also today in 2021. I'm currently penciling two books a month, producing Evangeline and Youngblood. I'm doing it now because I won't be young forever. And I feel that at my peak in the nineties, I failed to deliver as many comics as I could have. And I don't want to hear that Liefeld can't deliver on time. The two books that I was doing at that month was um, Hawk and Dove and, and Infinite. And later it would turn into Deathstroke. Um, so I just kept adding to my, 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 that my 2011 schedule. Remember today's comic book is tomorrow's digital download and next month's trade collection and part of a future omnibus. But if you don't produce it, forget about it. As to haters, yes, it undercuts their already weak position when you are producing 60 pages every month and you work with every major, major publisher have thick skin. Okay. Um, that, that is the best thing that I can share here. Have thick skin skin. And I'm going to, I'm going to go into this a little, uh, maybe the single most important item on this list. You're producing work that is consumed and judged by the public. And with today's social media and the 24 blogosphere, you better put on your big boy pants when you go outside this more than ever. Okay. Now more than ever, you're going to get poked at some point somewhere. The worm will turn. It's not a promise. It's a fact. Give me one of your comic book, sacred cows, your favorite. And I'll show you the blog, the thread or the review that tears them to pieces. It's all in how you apply your perspective. I arrived on the comic book scene in 87. 1987, I shot to quick fan favorite on Hawk and Dove. How do I know this? Because my editor kept reminding me that I didn't deserve my success. I hadn't earned it yet. What? Anyway, while I was drawing Hawk and Dove 5, my phone rang. It was the X-Men editor, Bob Harris. You guys know this. I got hired to do New Mutants, then turned that into X-Force from 1 million to 5 million copies, launched Youngblood. The criticism was drowned out by the millions of copies that were flying off the shelves. Then came Heroes Reborn. I boldly stepped up to the plate with a sure-to-be-controversial Captain America reboot and made the mistake of drawing one horrible Captain America picture. It drew the largest ire of my career at that time. But more than that, I was in the middle of a Marvel Civil War. The powers that were be were threatening to relocate the Marvel offices to the West Coast, the entire East Coast office 
offices openly rooted for our, our demise. No hard feelings. They were fighting for their jobs, and we were way across the country working in our insulated cubicles. Now, again, I wrote this in 2011. When I went to New York for a signing, shortly after Captain America launched it 150 times its previous sales, several Marvel editors in attendance and quite drunk told me that they hoped that we were over and out in no time. Even Jim Lee, with all his talent and charisma, was not enough to turn that ship around for a second season. We were both sent packing with no renewal. Despite accomplishing our goal of launching those books at numbers they hadn't seen in years, Heroes Reborn had the full snark of the blogosphere. And you know what? We knew it was coming. Worked through it and remained. I remain extremely proud of my run on Captain America. Better yet, I have signed at least... 350,000 copies since then, as fans regularly feed them to me at signings. But the stigma remained, and I had to deal with the reality of being the brand new internet whipping boy circa 1996. In the late 90s, the magazine, formerly known as The Wizard, came after me strong and hard. I was the brunt of jokes for an entire staff of angry fanboys who couldn't go work in comics, and they poured it on as much as they could possibly pour it on. But I kept focus as anyone in this situation should, because just one tribe... Just because one tribe piles on you, shelter and continue to work towards your goal, your next project. Do not let them take you out of your zone. Do not be discouraged. Remember that there are many fans of your work rooting for you to succeed. Very recently, a longtime friend and comic book author, best-selling comic book author, I'll add, called me in a panic. He had enjoyed a great run of great success, but his recent projects had been critically lambasted. He was tasting the fanboy wrath for the first time and was clearly undone by it. Rob, how do you cope with this? How does it affect all these other areas of your life. I, I, I was like, what? This guy's lost his mind. I distinctly remember having to work extra hard to calm him down while I watched the baseball playoffs. He chewed my ear off for over an hour. They can't find a single positive review or quote to put on my new trade collection, he said. I stopped it all with very blunt and straight talk. Your books are top sellers. They chart great. You're moving tons of product. I don't get your worries here. Welcome to success and all that follows. And I meant it. I went on to cite many directors and movie stars, including Michael Bay and Tom Cruise, that the public supposedly loathed, but somehow always managed to chart and connect with the masses. Same with pop stars and other variety of artists. Stop worrying. I wish I had your problems, I said. This will pass. Your next project will be even better. That's how I honestly feel, and I stand by that sentiment always. Get back up. Get back at it. That's how it's done. You need to have thick skin in the entertainment business. Period. It's not for the weak or the faint of heart. Fan is short for fanatic. We are all very passionate about our favorite characters and our storyline. But but it's personal, my friend implored. Yep, sometimes it gets personal. Case in point, the new Hawk and Dove launched a month back, and to put it bluntly, it was the single worst-reviewed comic of my career. Think about that for a minute. The blogosphere came out with me, knives sharpened, grilling me on the spigot. This is one short month after The Infinite, a book that I produced with Robert Kirkman, had debuted to the best reviews of my career. What happened? Well, I read a few of the reviews, the really awful, hateful, spiteful ones, and they were full of personal attacks towards me and insults. Many, if not all, believe that The Hawk and Dove was the first work I had, I had done in over a decade, and how could I possibly be employed? I was drawing the third issue of a sold-out comic featuring characters that had not carried their, carried their own title in 20 years. Did I let these attacks get to me? No. I have no time, and I have deadlines to meet. And arguing with these bloggers will never accomplish anything. In all caps, do not ever send a negative comment or engage a negative review. It's pointless. It, it, it's pointless. It takes up valuable time. I advocate moving forward, servicing the fan base that you have. 
Does George Lucas really worry about the internet rage against him for the Star Wars prequels or the reboots? Or does he look at all those Star Wars toys that line the toy shelves in every toy store across the globe? I'm betting he focuses on the fans that he is connecting with, not the chorus of critics that blast his every decision. Personal or not, remember this was written in 2011. Personal or not, lift your head up high and above all else, apply this last lesson, all caps, laugh at yourself, period, end of story. So many creative types are wound so tight and are so concerned with the weight of their work that they forget that we are producing periodic pop entertainment. Sometimes you're going to hit, sometimes you're going to miss. The Lost producers were taking it square on the chin as an uneven season two wound down, but has anyone ever rebounded stronger with the flash forward at the end of season three? Talk about a comeback. Then they bravely produced a polarizing series finale that is still routinely discussed and debated, but through it all, they take it in stride. Lost is part of TV's pantheon for a reason. I don't believe for one minute Damon Lindelof loses one ounce of sleep as a result of the split decision on his finale. You gotta laugh at yourself. It's the single most important aspect of surviving this crazy business. And that's from the man that gave you Cap's boobs. You guys, I read this back to you in the hopes that it resonates. All of it is true as it was then, more so today. With all of these, I have kids. My kids are teenagers now. They, they, the, the, the hate that I see pour through social media. Remember who you're dealing with. Those people that want to make their careers or make their lives spewing hate towards you are just angry with their own situation. They're mad that they didn't get the opportunity that you did, okay? Keep at it. Keep that thick skin. Laugh at yourself and keep at it. Um, I have had a fantastic 34-year career. Again, guys like Tom Cruise, guys like Kobe Bryant, I've seen them all dismissed, dealt out of the deck only to refuse to be dealt out of the deck because some talking head on some talking on some TV sports show said that they were finished or some movie critic said that they were finished or some comic book critic critic said that someone was finished. Laugh at yourself. Have that thick skin. Have fun um, in anything that you do. If, you, if you're writing a song, writing a book, drawing a comic, about to act, um, whatever you're doing, don't let the haters take you off. I'm going to leave you with this. If you've seen me in person, you've heard me talk about this sometimes. My two kids, they grew up in travel ball. My one son got picked to be part of the Compton Magic, which is one of the most competitive travel ball teams in Southern California. I mean, these guys are giants. I could not believe when my son, we had to go up to LAX at, 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 a, at a gym nearby Los Angeles International Airport. And he tried out and, and they called us back. They said they'd pick him up. We didn't pay dues into the Compton Magic. And they would remind us. It was a guy behind American Idol who was financing the entire, this entire travel ball club. And he said, look, remember, you don't pay into this. You don't pay dues to us. We provide you with free sneakers, travel opportunities. The one thing my kids could always do, and I was always, so I saw a lot of travel ball. I went to a lot of arenas. I saw a, a thousand basketball games since my kids were eight to 18, okay? I mean, when you're doing five a week, every weekend for a decade, I mean, it just adds up. And sometimes more than that because sometimes they're both playing. So I'm seeing three of my son's games on Saturdays and three of my younger son's game on the same day. My wife and I, sometimes we have to split up three and three. But free throws, they're free. They're right there. You got to make it. One time my son, when he was nine years old, end of the game, he got fouled. He went to the line. And this big, obnoxious woman 
from the opposing team, a mom stood underneath the basket in a way that I don't believe she should have been allowed to do. It would be like me standing in front of Shaq as he was trying to make a free throw at Staples. But she, very large woman, very obnoxious, waved at my son trying to distract him so that he wouldn't make his free throws. He nailed them both. Boom, boom, swish, swish. We won the game by two points. He made his free throws. He kept his cool. He kept his focus. That's haters. The hater is that lady underneath the basket, obnoxiously trying to distract you so that you miss your free throws, so that, so, so that you don't get the points and you don't win the game. Don't let that woman, that hater, take you off the mark and miss your free throws. All right? My kids could do it. Their dad does it. And you're going to do it. And that is the way I'm going to wrap up today. That is the note. Don't miss those free throws. Don't let that hater distract you and take you off the goal, take you away. Guys, thank you for visiting with me once again. Observations um, had a lot to get off my chest today. Thanks for listening. Don't be afraid to go independent. That's where legacy lies. And don't let those haters get you down. Uh, that All they want to do is distract you and disrupt you and make you as unhappy as they are. Thank you for visiting with me. Thanks for sharing this time with me, you guys. We are going to do this again next time. Uh, I appreciate you guys spreading the word, spreading the love, subscribing, sharing this with your friends, putting the word out on Rob's observations. Thank you so much. We're seeing such a surge. I know that it's you guys and the positivity that you're putting out there. I am on social media at Robert Liefeld on Twitter, at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. Both have the blue checks at Rob Liefeld on Instagram, at Robert Liefeld. So you know that it's me and not an imposter. I'm all over social media. I'm all over Facebook. Please say hi. Please uh, interact with me. I love hearing you guys, what you have to say. And, uh, you, you guys know the drill. You're going to take care of yourselves and you are going to stay safe. And we will talk again real soon. 